At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. Welcome Baptist Health Talk podcast listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco. I'm a preventative cardiologist and lipidologist at Baptist Health's Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, where I'm also Chief of Cardiology at Baptist Hospital and Chief Population Health Officer at Baptist Health. The COVID pandemic has raised awareness of mental health symptoms, with millions of Americans of all ages, races, and genders reporting that they're experiencing feelings of depression, anxiety, loneliness, and loss. Yet there's still a certain stigma attached to the subject. That stigma can make it particularly tough for men in our society, many of whom have been conditioned to believe that they should be stoic and solve their problems by themselves. Experts say that cases of anxiety and depression among men of all ages often go unreported and untreated. In a recent episode of Baptist Health's Resource Live program, we focused the spotlight on men's mental health with two experts on the subject. My guests were Dr. Rafael Rivas Vasquez, a neuropsychologist at Baptist Health, and Dr. Kevin Wandler. Chief Medical Officer at Advanced Recovery Systems. Let's hear what they had to say. So, um, Raphael, let's let's start with you. Um, there's a common phrase that says men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Um, can you dive into that a little bit? What are the differences in men and women, how they may deal with mental illness? Are there different kinds of mental illnesses and, and what how they may present between men and women? Yeah, well, I think John Gray was certainly onto something having sold, I think, over 15 million books. <laughs> And I think that it speaks you know, to essential differences. And just want to say that this is, it's probably not due to any one thing. We're probably looking at a confluence of neurobiology, anthropology, sociocultural issues that have resulted in what we see as the, as the end game of, of basic differences in how men and women deal with emotionally laden uh, stimuli and deal with their own uh, mental health issues. And I also want to say that, you know, we're talking in general generalities. Certainly, um, there are men who are emotive creatures and are in touch with emotionality and are able to discuss things. And there are women that tend to be more stoic and, and not as emotionally uh, present or expressive. But I think when we step back kind of statistically and look at the large groups, we can make some kind of generalized statements based on just what the science is. So we certainly know that when you look at the two most common mental health presentations, depression and anxiety, they are expressed up to two times more frequently in women than in men. So is that an actual difference? Is some of that reporting artifact? of just men, just women are more willing to discuss their depression when they're, when they're part of these large epidemiological studies. They're more willing to admit their anxiety, their sadness, their apathy, possibly. But the numbers are pretty staggering. And we're already, I think, on our third large epidemiological study over the past four decades that show the same recurrent findings. So, so Raphael, do you find in, in your practice and, and your colleagues, uh, when a man presents with asking for help, uh, are they usually coming in on their own volition or is there someone else that prompted them to, to get seek help? Probably a little bit of both. Um, and 
the presentations are a little different. I think women tend to want to come in prompted on, you know, on their own accord. There are a group of men that would not be in front of us, a group, not everyone, that would not be in front of us if not for the behest of someone who he's in a relationship with and has uh, asked him to come in and get evaluated and treated. So, Kevin, let, let's elaborate on that a little bit. I think that's an interesting uh, point. Um, when someone is around someone who seems always happy, we tend to assume that they are mentally in a good place and they don't have any issues. Um, is that always the case? And, and if it's not the case, what will one see in someone else? What, what would someone see in a man, whether it's their spouse, a loved one, a coworker, that might be signs of that person struggling a little bit or having some mental health related uh, concerns? Yeah, great question. Definitely people that are smiling all the time aren't happy, all of them. Some are, you know. Um, I think where you see it, people have like a work phase. So they may be um, always happy at work. When they go home, that's where the truth comes out. So like uh, Dr. Uh, Rivas Vasquez said, you know, someone in their circle may be noticing their behavior changes and so for men especially you know they don't come up and say i'm losing it i'm depressed they may present with irritability anger just going off the very low frustration tolerance um certainly they may lose interest in work or hobbies you know if they used to go fishing or whatever uh stop doing that uh start blaming people you know projection, blaming everyone around them for all the problems in the world or that are in their world, that is. Um, and certainly with COVID, <laughs> you know, it really became quite an issue. Uh, it still is an issue. Um, they would be maybe more likely to go in and see a medical doctor, or not a psychiatrist, but a physician, cardiologist, chest pain, uh, racing heart, headaches, digestive issues. Um, and my other world, I'm a psychiatrist, but I'm also addiction medicine, is certainly drinking like quadruple during COVID as a way to cope with some of these stress. They identify anxiety and depression differently. It's irritability, it's can't sleep. And so alcohol they may turn to, or certainly other drugs of use and misuse. Um, picking up on those great points, you mentioned a little bit, and, and I'm, I'm reading into it, is it a change in personality, a change in, in you know, do, do you pick it up mostly when you, you know someone well and you start seeing more irritable, um, a, a, a difference in their behavior, a difference in their personality? Is that something that triggers a little bit the signs that someone might be struggling? Definitely at the workplace or at home. I mean, if Johnny's always irritable and nasty, that's his baseline, you know? Right. <laughs> However, if he's the nicest person to work with, say, or a great partner, spouse, father, um, brother, whatever, and you suddenly see these changes, they can be signs of both depression or substance use disorder. I mean, the two are hand in hand there. Great question. Um, um, Raphael, so uh, following up on that, um, uh, depression, anxiety seem to be the most common. Um, Confirm that if that's the case. I think you mentioned that at the beginning. What are some of the other mental health conditions that men can develop and present with that we would want to be on alert um, um, to, to identify. Right, so, um, and I think the point was well made that while depression and anxiety as the two most common conditions tend to be expressed more frequently in women, 
men are going to express more substance abuse issues, are going to express more impulse control, more aggressivity, more externalizing behaviors. And those are the things that we need to watch out for. Um, cases in which there's been a behavior change, cases in which substance abuse has gone up. Uh, and uh, again, we, we just need to make sure that we're monitoring folks, colleagues, our patients, uh, looking for openings uh, to intervene. And remember that going back to kind of neurobiology and anthropology, that th there are structural and there are functional differences. You know, we're, we're wired a little differently. There are, there are hormonal differences that are going to determine how we, how men and women deal with conflict and deal with emotional arousal. So we're just not well equipped. It's the more evolved male that has access. Remember, dealing with emotional things and being able to talk about it, which we place a tremendous premium on being able to, to talk and express our distress. It's a, it's a two-phase issue. One is I need to be able to talk about it, but before that, I need to be able to experience it. Mm. I need to have that access to internal emotional life to be in touch with it and then talk about it. And a lot of men just shut things down. Yeah. Our, our neurobiology is such that if we can't solve it in the moment, if we can't deal with it right away, let's shut it down. Let's not let it get in the way of what we're doing. Um, it's fascinating. Again, the neurobiology, the chemical makeup of men and women actually um, contribute to the differences. Uh, I want to get to some societal stigmas in a second. Um, um, back with you, Raphael. But first, Kevin, again, you both mentioned a couple of times men and women can express um, those mental health symptoms differently. Um, let, let's go back to that a little bit and, and, and make sure the viewers can see that. How do women generally present when they have a, a significant depression? Um, and, and what do men generally present with? You guys brought it up and touched on it, but let's, let's speak specifically to that. What would be the more common presenting symptoms with a woman versus a man with these types of um, right. issues? Yeah, so women generally will come in saying they're depressed, looking sad, um, disheartened, uh, ex expressing worthlessness, um, problems keeping up with their job, whatever that is, or their duties. It may, they may be a full-time stay-at-home mom. Uh, they may have a job outside of the home and they start blaming themselves for, you know, why things aren't going well. Um, and then they also can experience drug and alcohol use as a way of coping big time, big time. Um, and they'll go to the, they would go to, uh, a psychiatrist or a primary care physician and ask for something to help cope with sleep and anxiety and depression. Um, primary care providers prescribe more antidepressants than psychiatrists because there's more of them. And there's more access to them. Um, for a, a meal, again, it's, we talked about it, it's irritable, it's anger, it's um, acting out physically and certainly drugs and alcohol can contribute to that. But I do want to say something. Both men and women have a common theme for, for contributors to mental health. Um, certainly many have a family history or genetics, um, very important. Or we see a history of bipolar, we see a history of depression, anxiety, and alcohol use and substance use. Certainly a lot, many of my patients have had history of physical or sexual abuse. 
um, which can totally change the, how they see the world and how they cope with stress. A lot of history of bullying, especially in young people, we see suicide from that. Um, loss of a loved one, of course. And then during COVID, many people lost their jobs, at least temporarily. Um, and if you're a breadwinner, I mean, that's a huge blow to either male or female. I mean, whoever the breadwinner is, you've got to support your family. Um, and of course, drugs and alcohol problems can, I see them hand in hand. So um, certainly in the cardiovascular realm, it's well established that women tend to ignore their problems, seek help later for various reasons, having to care for the family, um, um, worrying about the spouse more. Raphael, you mentioned there's some biochemical differences, men are from Mars and women from Venus. What about some societal concerns, uh, the stigmas that may attach to a man seeking help uh, for this area? Do you see that? Do you find that there's a stigma attached with a man complaining or recognizing may have some mental health um, um, issues and needs? And if so, why do you think that's the case? You know, I, I, it always gets down, it always comes back to three things. Weakness, weakness, weakness. Uh, men are perceived as being weak if they seek help. How often there's a certain amount of shame when a man sits in front of you to admit that he feels de depressed, apathetic, maybe uh, socially impotent in the sense that we saw this over the past year with loss of job, um, loss of income, where men truly felt impotent and unable to bring about change and provide for the family. And there's a certain amount of shame, not only that they're going through it, but now I'm sitting in front of someone having to discuss it. It almost reifies the, the pain they're going through. And women seem to find true, genuine relief in connecting that in that dyadic sense of I'm talking with someone, I'm receiving empathy from them. I've sat with men where they almost feel embarrassed that the empathy that you're showing them makes them feel good, right? I should be able to do this by myself. How many yeah. euphemistic phrases do we have? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It is mm -hmm. what it is. What does that mean? Accept reality. Dampen out your feelings and keep moving forward. Um, and I can echo that from experience. Um, as a, a physician leader, I've had to recognize these changes in some of my doctors and yep. sat with them at this level. And at first, there might be a little discomfort on their part, but then they'll open up Indeed. and we can, we can make them better. So I can I certainly echo that. Um, um, going back to the COVID comments you guys made, Kevin, do you think, or have you guys, I'll ask both of you, um, it'll start with Kevin, has COVID made it easier for men to open up about these stresses? We know the stress, the anxiety, the work-related, financial, the, the being closed in, the uncertainty of the pandemic, family issues, all the things that we can recognize can increase the stress, anxiety, depression, substance abuse. Do you find the pandemic has made it easier for men to recognize it and seek help, or have you not really seen any kind of shifts in, um, in uh, referrals and, and, and requests for your guys' services? Well, it's been just has been discussed there's been a lot more well i guess it hasn't discussed there's been more depression and more anxiety since covid hit and so we may be seeing more men and or women because of that however as soon as the pandemic hit many resources disappeared you know mental health counselors offices closed 
psychiatry offices closed and we went to something magical called telehealth. Suddenly it's everywhere. And that's, that's a good thing. If anything good came out of this, that might be it, that insurers are looking at reimbursing for telehealth sessions. And so there's a group of individuals we see, and especially young, younger, um, and how, how do you find younger, I guess, uh, is a relative term, but younger people really kind of like the telehealth part. They can sit in their room at home, do a session with a doctor or a therapist or counselor, and not have to worry about getting COVID. And this is especially before the vaccine came out and um, actually get some care. So there's a group, but then there's a group of people that don't want to do this tele stuff, you know, and it's not real therapy. And there's others that find it easier to talk because, you know, I'm, I'm not in their space. You know, so to speak, I am, especially me, I'm 2,000 miles away, so, uh, or whatever, uh, anyhow. So it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged thing, so I'm not sure if it's actually gone up. So we, we've created an environment where we can identify and increase drivers of mental health issues as we've decreased access, um, and now the telemedicine, the telehealth components might be resolving or at least providing that access back. Do you guys see, and I'll ask you first, Kevin, quickly, and then thereafter, do you see a generational shift, for example? Is the younger generation more open, less open, the same towards, uh, I'm talking about the men seeking help or identifying um, their own needs? Um, do you see any generational uh, differences? Um, um, I'll start with Kevin quickly. Definitely do. I think younger people are much more willing to talk about their issues. It even goes to teenagers. Everything I said earlier, about triggers or mental health and substance use is the same for kids. Um, they are they get a lot of exposure to mental health because of suicides and the scary things that have been out there with um, you know the shootings and etc. And so younger people are getting more used to it. I think that the millennials I have a couple at home or they're growing up now, but um, they. Uh, they, they talk all the time <laughs> about yeah. everything. I mean, and not because I'm a psychiatrist and I'm their dad. I mean, they talk to everybody about everything. More expressive. Yeah. More expressive. 65-year-old plus, not so much. And they're at really high-risk men that have maybe now are no longer working because of just aged out or aren't able to um, get depressed. They may have lost their partner if they had one or spouse. Um, family is distant, et cetera, et cetera, are really high risk. And if you have an elderly male, um, or anyone for that matter, who's talking about suicidal ideation, those guys will do it. Yeah. You know, they'll follow through. Why, why do men, why are men more likely to die by suicide than, than women? Oh, any, any thoughts? Yeah, they use more violent means. Yeah. You know, women tend to use uh, cutting and pills you know, and there's certainly cries for help. I'm not minimizing, and people can die from those things, but less likely to. So, so it's not the rates of suicide are different, it's the success of the suicide yes. that, that's different. Women actually attempt suicide more than men, uh, but men are more successful because a gun, you know, you really, <laughs> it's one and done, you know, uh, it's unfortunately, and hanging, et cetera, more violent means. Very, very scary. Yeah. So, 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 Raphael, let's let's switch gears as we as we um, uh, wrap up with a couple of points. 
we've identified the differences between men and women, both in how they present and how they address their own mental health needs. Um, let's talk about a little bit what we what we can do to, to help people. Um, when someone seeks help, what, what's the benefit of such? What what is seeking help? What does seeking help and getting help look like? You know, first and foremost, assessment regarding uh, level of acuity, symptom severity, what's the right treatment, what's the right diagnosis, and then what's the right treatment to prevent further decline, to alleviate distress, to um, correct any, any impairment. So again, the, the assessment and the prescription as to what's the appropriate treatment um, always leads the way. Um, the, the two primary treatment paths are medication, psychotherapy or counseling or a combination of both and depending on the patient you individualize uh, that plan to make that determination um, but clearly there's tremendous health benefits to be able to come in get the adequate get the correct assessment and get the adequate treatment initiated to restore functioning alleviate distress I think that's well said it's the customization you can go online and read stuff but the, 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 the clinical assessment is your particular circumstances, your needs, your benefits, your treatment. So we, we would want to encourage that. Um, do you find when someone seeks help that that means they will be on medications or treatments for the rest of their life? Is that, is that a guarantee? Uh, not necessarily. I, I, I'll, I can defer to Dr. Wandler on this um, as a psychiatrist, but not everyone that comes in, first and foremost, is going to need medication. And then of those, of those patients in which it's indicated for medication, uh, depending on the degree of, of uh, the duration of illness they've had, if they've had prior episodes of depression or anxiety, that's going to that's gonna dictate um, how long they're going to be on, on treatment. Uh, and, and again, not, not, everyone needs, not everyone needs medication and not everyone benefits from psychotherapy necessarily. There are just some folks who aren't kind of wired that way. And that's that's that customization of who's going to benefit from which modality, either monotherapy or combination. Understood. Dr. Wadler? Yeah, Dr. Uh, Rivas-Vasquez certainly brought up some great points. Um, most depression that I've worked with is cyclic or once, you know, we have a COVID pandemic. Many people are actually having post-traumatic stress disorder from this because of all the um, consequences of the pandemic from isolation to distancing, to masking, to, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. I mean, there's a lot of issues there. And if they've had depression before, responded before to medication and therapy, and I, I like the combination personally, um, they're likely to have a short-term situation. However, if they've lost their job, I mean, if there's a series of social circumstances, they may be having to come in for quite some time. My goal is trying to get people off of medications in six to nine months if possible, as long as they're in therapy also. Um, Understood. Um, something I think that could support our viewers, um, Raphael, I'll ask both of you as well. So now you, you, you have a loved one or a coworker or someone you're exposed to who you think is having problems, or well, that person may even hit rock bottom and reach out to you. Um, how can one support a, a male friend who um, is having mental health issues? Yeah, you know, the, the past year with, with COVID has uh, given us plenty of opportunity for, for friends and, and colleagues to, to approach us. Um, you know, first, 
make sure that there's in that initial interaction when they're reaching out to you that there's support and reinforcement of how important it has been um, for them to reach out to you. Share a little bit of, of your own uh, distress during this time as a matter, as a way of connecting with them and encourage them to seek professional help. Try to destigmatize it, try to normalize it for them uh, and really try and you know, try to encourage as much as possible. If, if they're not comfortable seeing a mental health professional, have them at least talk to their PCP as, as also an alternative path. Um, getting them to see a psychiatrist or psychologist is optimal or, or any mental health professional. But at the very least, once they've reached out to you, if they're not willing to do that, have them connect with their PCP. And the primary care can either help them or help expedite a connection. Correct. To, uh, which, is, which is worthwhile as well. Kevin, what about the individual who might be recognizing or trying to determine if they have help, if they need help, what would their, what would their first step be? Well, I think, you know, if they're having thoughts of suicide, you know, that's, that's a big deal. Okay. And we certainly have them call something like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And I think you're going to give the number. I'll give it now too. It's 800-273-8255 for support. And there's a lot of different uh, crisis management um, phone places out there that people are able to access. It's all regional. And so if someone's in a different state than Florida, their resources may be different. But the suicide helpline is national. And so that's really important. And then I try to encourage people, if this was a friend, you know, okay, well, let's start doing some simple things. I mean, for me, COVID was a time of stress, anxiety, loneliness. And so how do I deal with that? Well, let's just do simple things. Go to the grocery store, you know? <laughs> and my poor cashiers hated seeing me because I chatted them up. There's someone alive to talk to, you know? Walking, just taking walks, trying to reduce stress. And then those resources, if you call those helplines, they'll also give you them more resources local in their community. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to encourage all our listeners to take a moment to give this podcast a five-star rating on whichever platform you listen to us on. And if you have a comment or a suggestion for a future topic, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.